And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. But there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment thus wasted? For this ointment might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they reproached her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you will always have the poor with you, and wherever you will, you can do good to them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for bearing, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's hard for me to believe that it was almost 20 years ago now that I first was reading what has become one of my all-time favorite books, and that was the book, Tuesdays with Maury. It was written by Mitch Albom. You remember the story about Maury Schwartz. Maury Schwartz was a college professor who taught psychology and sociology. He loved what he did so much that he continued teaching right on up into his 70s, loving life and still living fully, when suddenly he found that he was having a hard time picking up his feet, especially when he went dancing. He was getting hard. And his wife was concerned about him, and so she took him to the doctor, and they did extensive tests. And that's when they found that he had ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. It's when your muscles begin to atrophy, starts at your feet, moves up your legs, moves to your core, and when it finally hits your lungs and your heart, you die. Your mind continues to work well through everything as your body slowly dies. Well, it turned out that when Maury got this diagnosis, the doctor said, we believe you have two years or less to live. And it threw him certainly into shock in the beginning. But when he finally moved past the shock, he was able to decide that this process of dying did not mean that you were useless. And that really during this process of dying, it was a time you should be growing and learning and loving. And so he began writing down the things that he was discovering, knowing that he was going to die. And as he wrote these things down, they began to get published. They were picked up by Ted Koppel who happened to read them and was so impressed. At that time, he was leading a show called Nightline, and he called Maury up and said, would you like to be on the show? And so Maury was on the show to talk about living and dying and what he was learning. Well, Mitch Albin had been his student in college. And he was sitting at home flipping through the channels when he saw his old professor on TV and saying that he was dying. Now, back in college, Mitch had taken every course that, that Maury taught. He loved Maury. Every course he taught. And when he graduated, he said, we're going to stay in touch. We're going to stay in touch. You ever said that? 
16 years had gone by. They hadn't been in touch. I mean, Mitch had been so busy. He'd become so successful as a sports writer with the Detroit Free Press. And now when he saw his old professor and heard that he was dying, the very next day he jumped on a plane from Detroit to Massachusetts, and there he and Maury were reunited. And it was just like old times. The Detroit Free Press had gone on strike. Mitch had lots of time on his hands. And so he made a commitment. He, every Tuesday he would fly from Detroit to Massachusetts to be with Maury, sit at his bedside, and it would be just like the old days. The professor teaching his student about the matters of life and death. And so he would bring his tape recorder and they chose all kinds of topics to talk about. And finally the day came when the topic was death. And when Mitch came in and sat down, it was Maury who said, all right, let's start with a basic premise. Everybody knows they're going to die. But nobody believes it. Because if they did, they probably would be living different. I read that 20 years ago. And it has stuck with me and it was one of those profound statements that I have remembered and I repeat often to myself. Everybody knows they're going to die. But nobody believes it. Because if they did, chances are they would be doing it different. There is no greater example of that than our scripture lesson this morning. For our scripture lesson this morning comes on the Wednesday night of Holy Week, two days before Jesus is going to be crucified. Now, Jesus has been telling his disciples and his followers for quite some time, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be betrayed and I will die. But they didn't believe it. Well, at least not all of them. This woman believed it. And this night when Jesus went and sat at table with Simon, a friend of his, there in Jerusalem, this woman came with this ointment, an oil, to anoint Jesus' head. It's the kind of thing you would do for someone who is about to die. You anoint their body for burial. And so she came and she breaks this jar and she uses the whole thing on Jesus. It was an extravagant gift. It's something she was doing because she wanted to show him how much she loved him, how much she cared about him. It was an incredibly kind thing to do. She did it because she believed Jesus was going to die. And this might be the last time that she would be near him or be able to see him. Now the disciples were there and they began to be angry at her. And I've always wondered about that. You know, sometimes when you see someone else do a kind thing and you haven't done it, it sure is easy to get angry at them because you're feeling guilty you didn't do it. They get angry at this woman because of the incredible kind thing she did. And they don't do anything very special for Jesus. The reason? Because they don't believe he's going to die. Oh, he tells them that night, I might always be with you. The next night on Thursday night, the night of the Last Supper, he says, I'm about to be betrayed. One of you will betray me and I will be killed. And they all say, we'll never let that happen. They didn't believe it. And because you don't believe it, 
you don't do anything. I can't wonder how many of them, after Jesus is crucified, begin to think, if I'd have known that he was going to die, there were things I wanted to say to him. If I'd have known he was going to die, I would have been kinder. I, I, I would have told him how much I loved him. If they'd have believed it, they would have behaved differently. But because they didn't believe it, they didn't do it. They missed the moment. That's the issue of life. We're all going to die. But we don't believe it. Because if we did, we probably would be doing it different. This morning, I want to continue on with this sermon series, this Lenten series of In Matters of Life and Death and Life. And you and I have said that what Lent is about, it's a time for you and I to get honest and examine our lives. Not in order to feel guilty, not in order to beat ourselves up, but it's a great time to stop and look at our lives in the light of God's grace and in the awareness of death. Because death is a part of life. And when you and I examine our lives in the light of God's grace and with the awareness of death, we might choose to live life differently. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. To have that life, we might have to choose to be doing it different. I told you about Thomas Friedman's book, Thank You for Being Late. It's a really great book, and I found it to be very profound in the way that he laid out where you and I are right now in history. That we're living in a time of history that's exciting, but the rate of change is faster than any time ever before. The way technology is changing, the way you and I will live. And with this rate of change, it's easy to get lost in our values and what we feel. That's why we're looking at the stories of Jesus this year to know our values. But I thought it was fascinating that Thomas Friedman, he is a good Jew, he says there is an answer to all this. And the answer is we need to be focusing more on community and loving and being kind to each other. In a world that is changing so fast and being fragmented, we need to focus on community and being loving and kinder to each other. He tells the story in the book about a rabbi a rabbi who is teaching his students. And the rabbi asks his students, when does the night end and when does the day begin? Now, they knew that was an important question. It's an important question because some rituals can only be done at night. Some can only be done in the day. The Ten Commandments, well, we know that you're supposed to observe the Sabbath. That's all about day and night. And so he said, so when does the night end? When does the day begin? And one of the students said, well, when I look out and I see the fields and I can tell my field is different from my neighbor's field, the day has begun. Another student said, I think it's when there's enough light, I can see a house and I can distinguish, is it my house from my neighbor's house? Another student said, no, it's when there's enough light, I can look out into that field and I can see animals. And now I know that this animal is a cow versus a horse versus a sheep versus a goat. And the rabbi looked very sad and he said, no. 
everything you talk about divides. It separates us. Isn't there enough dividing and separating in the world already today? Is that what our faith does? No. The night ends when you look into the face of the person next to you and you see that they are your brother or your sister. That's when the night ends and the day begins. It's when you and I look into the face of the person next to us and we see our brother or sister. And in the awareness of death, we come to realize that this is the moment that we're called to be kind. It's a choice. It's what I want us to think about this morning. And I just want to share three thoughts with you. First of all, Jesus said to his disciples, You will not always have me with you. You won't always have me with you. He tells them that on Wednesday night. They don't believe it. The woman does. And so she uses the oil to anoint his body and she is so kind. To see that moment. Those of you, I I look around and you know, it's, it's a fun family of faith. There's so many people here who have been a part of this family of faith for 50 or more years and yet we have so many new people of this family of faith in the last six weeks. If you've been here for a long time, then you'll know the name of Pat Williams. Pat Williams was a member of this family of faith for more than 50 years. If you're newer, you won't know Pat because she died a number of years ago now. But I loved Pat. She was quite a character, always dressed to the nines, very involved in United Methodist Women and our garage sale. But more than that, she loved to tease. She loved to laugh. And you know how much I like doing that. And so we really hit it off together. Well, years ago, I'll never forget, Pat told me a wonderful story on herself. It was actually back in 1993. She and her whole family were going to Vail for Christmas. All of her family was flying in from around the country and she was so excited. She wanted this celebration in Vail to be perfect. And so it was that she wanted to do all the cooking and she began getting out the spices and things she would need to be making the Christmas meals. And she wanted to have presents for everybody, so she'd been shopping, lots of shopping, and wrapping all these gifts. This is pre-9-11, where you could carry wrapped gifts. And then, of course, she was going to be looking good when she was in Vail for Christmas, so she was getting out all her clothes. This was also before bag claim or bag charges. When Pat got through packing for the Christmas vacation, she had nine suitcases. Nine. But she also wanted to decorate and have the condo looking good, so she had a couple of green reefs carrying those in bags that she wanted to be able to hang on the walls there at the condo, and she was ready to go. She flew into Eagle County Airport. If you've ever been to Eagle County Airport, it's a commercial airport, but very small. If it brings in a plane of 200 people, it is overrun with people. During the holidays, when two or three are landing at a time, it's crazy. And in 1993, they didn't have a lot of baggage handling. And they had a rule that said, no porters inside. You had to get your luggage out to the curb where they'd have vans and taxis and people who then would take care of you. 
Now, Pat stood about this high. She was not tall in stature. And when she was there standing in the baggage claim and the bags started coming off all these people's bags, she started trying to fight for her nine suitcases. And she was struggling and there was a man standing beside her. And the man finally said, are are you having trouble? Yes, yes, I am. Could I help you? That would be wonderful. So she started pointing out and he started getting in there and fighting to get the bags and pulling them off and building this stack of all these suitcases and a couple of these reefs. And he finally had gotten all the things collected around her. So they can now, he said, would you like me to help you get it outside? Oh, that would be wonderful. So she grabbed her little makeup bag and headed out. He came dragging all these suitcases and all these wreaths for the condo and he got them all outside to the curb and she was very grateful. She got out and got a few dollars and said, I I really want to express my appreciation. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, please, I'd love to tip you. Oh, no, no, no. And he walked off. And the taxi cab driver said, you got some good help there, lady. I know, I know. He was very kind. Do you know who that was? No. That was Gerald Ford. (laughs) He has a home in Beaver Creek there in the Vale Valley. He was heading home. And and Pat said she got in the car and was heading out. She was mortified. (laughs) Mortified that she had just been trying to tip the past president for carrying her bags out to the curb. And as she's driving home and she's mortified, I couldn't help but think, Jerry Ford is riding home at this time and he is laughing his head off. (laughs) He can hardly wait to get home to Betty to say, you should have seen this lady I met in the airport today. But he chose to be kind in the moment he saw a need. He didn't do it for publicity. She didn't know who he was. There were no press. He's just a former president heading home, and he chose to be kind. It doesn't matter whether you're president or a preacher. If you see a need, if you see in the face of another person, your brother or sister, you choose to be kind. This woman poured oil on Jesus' head to anoint his body, And it was very extravagant. She used all that she had. And they said it's been wasted. She didn't think it was wasted. Because she would carry that memory of being kind to Jesus for the rest of her life. She would always have the gift of that oil. You won't always have me with you, said Jesus. Some didn't believe it. Some understood. Secondly, Jesus said, she did what she could. Do not bother her. She did what she could. Sometimes you and I don't do something kind because we don't feel like we're strong enough, powerful enough, smart enough. We don't have enough money. She did what she could. And the truth is, when you do what you can in a response to being kind, I can assure you it will always be enough. 
for God to use in the blessed life. You may recognize the name Dave Isay. Dave Isay is a fascinating young man, a man now older. He, he was born in, uh, up in New York in Manhattan, grew up in a good Jewish family. All of his relatives were from Eastern Europe. They had moved into New York. And what he remembered about his childhood is as a boy, a young boy, he liked talking to old people. Probably 60 years old. He liked talking to old people, you know, and so he was going to listen to their stories. And the families were always telling their stories. And they loved the fact that he's willing to listen. He had his little tape recorder. He would listen, wanted them to tell their stories. And he grew up enjoying hearing about other people's lives and the messages they've learned. Well, he knew he was going to go to medical school, been preparing for it, went through junior high, high school, college. It was in the last part of his college days that he was walking down the street one day in eastern Manhattan in a very difficult part of town when he saw a storefront that caught his attention. It was just different and he went in and there was this husband and wife, this man and woman, Angel, Carmen, and they had created this storefront that was a place that talked about the history of addiction and how you find hope and help. You see, both of them were recovering addicts. And so he starts talking to them and sees all these things and they start explaining they want to have this museum all about recovering addicts and how you get help and how you get hope. And they're excited about this. The only problem is they don't have any money. And two, Carmen from a dirty needle has AIDS. This was 1988. If you had AIDS in 1988, we didn't know much what to do then. But they told their story and it was so empowering to Dave. He wanted to tell the story so he went home and he started calling television stations and radio stations. Anybody he could to say, there's a great story here you might want to run with. I mean, they, they were trying to raise money on their own but they couldn't come up with any money. He wanted to help them. But nobody was interested. So they finally found one radio station, very small there in New York. Susan Goodman was the radio station director. And he told it and she said, that's a great story. But I don't have any reporters to cover it. Why don't you do it? And he thought, I can't do it as good as everybody else, but I'll do what I can. And so he went back to them, let them tell their story. He listened, he taped it, came home, he edited it. And when he edited the story, he sent it off to Susan. She loved it. She put it on the air. And it just so happened. Don't you ever have those just so happened moments? It just so happened that a man was riding through New York who happened to be listening to this little radio station who just happened to hear it at the time that this story was going to be playing from Susan Goodman and he happened to be in charge of programming on NPR nationally. And when he heard the story, he called Susan and said, that's a good story. I'd like to run it nationally. And so they did. And as you can imagine, Angel and Carmen well, they got the resources they needed to turn their dream into reality of a place of hope and help. But it did more than just that moment of blessing them. It did something to Dave. He knew this was God's calling for his life. It wasn't medical school. It was going to be listening to stories 
It would be radio, telling stories. And so Dave, I say, is actually the founder of StoryCorps. You've heard of StoryCorps, this program that is set up across the country where people can come and tell their stories. And it then gets archived in the American Folklore Institute and the National Library of Congress. Over 100,000 people have participated telling their story. Because he believes everybody has a story that is worth telling. Everybody has something important to share. And so these little trailers now go around the country to different cities so that everyone can have a chance to tell their story. And you may know that the StoryCorps trailer is here in Oklahoma City right now, just a couple of blocks away, all the way to the end of this week. And all the stories that are shared will be archived in the Library of Congress. 100,000 people have already participated. It's where we got our inspiration for our story booth, encouraging you to go and talk about your story of faith this year. How has God worked in your life? How has God blessed you and your faith grown? You don't have to do it by yourself. You can do it with your child or grandchild or a parent or a spouse or whoever you want. But you get a copy and we'll keep a copy and it is archived forever so that your relative, friend, grandchild one day can hear you talk about your story of faith. And it's all happened because this young 20-year-old kid decided to do what he could to be kind to a couple who needed help. It is enough. What you choose to do when you see a need is enough for God to use in wonderful ways. This woman could not save Jesus from being crucified because she could reach out and love him and encourage him. She anointed his body for burial. She seized the moment because she thought, I may never get near him again. And she would not. She took the moment to do what she could. And so third, Jesus then said, and wherever the gospel is preached, this story is going to be told in memory of her forever. Wherever the gospel is preached, this story is going to be told. This story is told in all four gospels. Now, you know, not all, not many stories in the Bible are told in all four Gospels. And only one miracle is told in all four Gospels. And I'm going to let you read them to find out which one it is. One miracle is told in all four Gospels. Few stories are. This one is. 2,000 years later, we're telling the story. Because we believe there are values here of who we are in the midst of this changing world. You know, I've been watching this tragedy down in Florida with these 17 teenagers being killed. And did you ever notice what the media does? They'll get a picture and finally be able to identify someone who they are and then give you two or three lines that tells you about them. They put up another picture, two or three lines. This is who they are. Same thing happened in Las Vegas. After that, they'd put up a picture... Two or three lines. This is who they were. 
After this last shooting down in Florida, I got to wondering, if I had been a victim in that shooting, what are the two or three lines they would have said about me? What are the two or three lines they would have said about you? You and I have a choice to make about what we want people to say, what we want to be remembered by. The story will be told wherever the gospel is preached in honor of her forever. It's a choice. You know, I I love Rachel Remen. She happens to be what I think is one of the kindest people that I've ever known. Rachel Remen, if you'll remember, came and spoke here at St. Luke's. Such a lovely lady. We had her here on a Sunday morning. She's written a couple of my favorite books, My Grandfather's uh, Blessing, Kitchen Table Wisdom. Um, Just a special lady. And we had her to our home and got to know Rachel. And I call her on a regular basis every so often just to keep up and see how she's doing. She's always so kind and so gracious. Her name is actually Rachel Naomi Rimmon. And I did not know that before she turned 50 years old, she always went by the name Naomi. I've only ever known her as Rachel. But she used to go by Naomi. You see, it turned out that when she was born, her grandmother was already dead, her mother's mother, and her name was Rachel. She was living in Russia. She was Jewish, and life was so difficult. And yet she was always so kind. She never turned anybody away. Everybody said she was a saint. She had such a kind heart. And so Rachel's mom named her daughter Rachel after her mother because she said, I want you to have a kind heart. But her father named her also Naomi because that was their family name. And he was the kind who was strong enough to say when she was born, she will go by Naomi. And so that's what she grew up with. Her name was Naomi. Well, when it turned out that Rachel's mom was 85 years old, she had to have open-heart surgery, bypass surgery. And it didn't go real well. She was in ICU for an extended period of time, and she got psychosis where you don't know who you are or who other people are. And she seemed so disoriented. Started clearing up, got better. But once it got better, then she started seeing all these dead people, all these dead relatives that she said she was visiting with each day. And saying how beautiful it was. And the nurses started telling Rachel, you've got to tell her what's reality, what she sees and doesn't see. Well, one day she came into ICU and her mom was sitting up. She really seemed clear and bright-eyed. And she came in and she said, Mom, how are you? I'm great. Do you know who I am? Well, of course, you're my beloved daughter, Rachel. So good to see you, Mom. She went over to sit down and her mom hollered, Don't sit down! You don't want to sit down on your grandmother. (laughs) Chair looked empty to her. In the end, she went back out into the room and got another chair rather than telling her mom, oh, you really don't see her. She brought the chair and sat down and her mom said, I'm so glad the two of you are finally together. I've always wanted to introduce you. Mom, this is your granddaughter, Rachel. You know, Mom, I named her after you because I wanted her to have your heart. But you know my husband. I mean, he demanded she be called Naomi. But I wanted her to be called Rachel after you. 
And then she went on to start talking about how special Rachel was and all she had accomplished. And Rachel said it was the strangest conversation to sit there and listen to your mother talking about you to her mother, your grandmother. And she'd say something and then wait. And then she'd answer and say something and wait. And something would be said and her mother would laugh. And Rachel said, I could tell I was hearing half a conversation. And it went on for a while until finally her mom grew quiet and she said, I'm so glad both of you are here because I know that soon one of you will take me home. And Rachel said it was a couple of days later that her grandmother took her mom home. But the conversation continued to haunt her Rachel started looking at her life honestly to examine her life. As a child, she had faced several diseases and almost died. She had to be a fighter and be tough. She went to medical school in the 1950s, only woman in her class in a man's world. She had to be tough. She went and taught on the faculty at Stanford in the medical school, one of only two women. She had to be tough. She looked at all that she had accomplished and she said, if I was honest and looking at my life, I had done so much, but I hadn't always done it with a kind spirit. When she turned 50 years old, she wrote a letter to all of her family and her friends and she said, I no longer want to be called Naomi. I want to be called by my real name. From now on, I want you to call me Rachel. It's time to change. This Lent, you and I are supposed to look at our lives honestly in the light of God's grace and in the awareness of death and we're honest because maybe it's time to change. You see, everybody knows they're going to die, but nobody believes it. Because if we did, we might be doing it different. It is a choice to be kind. And Jesus said, when we are, it will lead us into a life more abundant. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.